Today is Sunday, May 31st, 2020, and this is episode 252 of the Defensive Security Podcast, just four episodes away from the very consequential episode 256 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Not nearly as dead as reported, Andrew Callett. Hello, sir. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's, uh, you know, although it's Sunday evening, which means Monday morning's fast approaching. Yes, yes, but you know like a, you got to get through Monday to get back to Friday. So I know, but I mean, shit, this week has been. Cra- I mean, look at everything going on in the U.S. Crazy. Who knows what's gonna happen this week? I know. Well, you know, I, there's there was earthquakes over in out in Yellowstone. So I just, you know, I mean, every every week <laughs> it seems to get crazier. And cra- I'm like, like I thought last year was my weird year. No, no, that was just a warm up. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 gonna try to beat this year. I think. Jeez. Anyhow, um, just uh, before we get into our stories, uh, w- number one, uh, you know, thanks for patience. It's been uh, a couple weeks since we've done a show. Um, work's been crazy, some holidays and some vacation time, uh, mostly my fault. So, but we're back now. Uh, also a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. But they could for a large fee. For a very large fee. That's right. All right. Um, first story for today comes from uh, Bank Info Security, and the title is Capital One Must Turn Over Mandiant's Forensic Report. So um, no no new, for those of you who have been following this, no new um, consequential information to talk about here um, is in terms of how the breach uh, proceeded or, or happened. But I thought it was really interesting that, it, you know, the context of this is, you know, I think we know because the the you know the the alleged actor here has been criminally charged, and so we have some details that were in that in that criminal complaint. But you know, th- there was a a much larger piece of work done by uh, Mandiant. Uh, on behalf of of Capital One, in response to their data breach that was uh, disclosed last last summer, in uh, the new news here is that a, a, a class action lawsuit's been formed. They've consolidated the, the courts have consolidated a whole bunch of different lawsuits into one, and the uh, the plaintiffs' attorneys who were successful in convincing the judge to compel Capital One to turn over the uh, the investigation report from Mandiant, which is not something most companies would really ever want to have happen. And I thought the, the the reasoning from the judge was pretty fascinating, basically saying that, that capital one had Mandiant on retainer and uh, had, had actually classified the engagement with Mandiant as a business expense rather than as a legal expense. And so the, so the, uh, you know, the judge basically says that there's no there's no indication that the investigation would have been done differently had it been 
conducted under illegal, you know, as a basically between um, done for business purposes versus done for legal purposes. Uh, um, you know that we have this concept of legal privilege, and and uh, the issue here is, I think it's not said directly, but I think it, that uh, Capital One was trying to claim. Uh, attorney-client privilege, right? And and as a reason not to turn over the report, obviously the judge is saying, well, it's not really the work product of an attorney, and uh, and therefore you have to to turn it over. So, um, I, so it kind of points I, out, you know, some peril here. <clears throat> so what I take away from that is now all of our forensic response investigators need to be attorneys. Well. Yeah. I mean, there's a study at home course, that, isn't there? Like a, like a, <laughs> well, so right after not, TV VCR repair. Not, not only do you have to be an attorney, right? But it's not enough to be an attorney. You also have to be an attorney providing legal counsel to your mm-hmm. company, right? So it's, uh, it's, it's even a little more narrow than that. Uh, but it's, it's, this is a difficult situation. Uh, somewhat off topic, but for a while there, there were a number of states pushing for um, <clears throat> forensics type folks to be licensed as private investigators. Yes, I, I think that that died, but that was a weird one. And I was like, oh, you know, man, how hard is it to be a private investigator? It's actually not easy to get licensed as a private, at least in Georgia. There's all this stuff that you would never actually do right. as I, a like you have to learn how to slide over the hood of a car just just well, so you don't know how. I've never you grew up in I, Detroit. <laughs> Did you watch T.J. Hooker for nothing? I look, man. I just Starsky I could Hutch. never I could never do it. Anyway, uh, the other thing I was I I would really love to read the reports. So I hope it got, becomes public as public record from the from the lawsuit. I know they don't want it to, and Mandia doesn't want it to, and I understand that. But for us trying to learn lessons, that would be awesome. There's a decent chance that it will. I I, I would say there's a you know, fairly decent chance that it'll it will be disclosed. In some form or fashion. But, you know, this is, by the way, one of the reasons uh, that, that a lot of, especially larger companies, will uh, have their in-house legal counsel you know, basically you know, guide investigations, you know, guide security investigations, because then, you know, there's a, there's more of a, a, a case to be made for the, you know, the, the materials produced in the investigation to be covered by legal privilege. It's not, I don't think it's a guarantee. But you know, it's it's something. Um, whereas this apparently really didn't have anything, which, by the way, is is quite surprising. I would have thought Capital One, um, of all companies, you know, would have would have had the ability or had the, the foreknowledge on how to do this. And that tells me maybe I'm completely off base. And and um, you know, they uh, there's well, really, really they no didn't? hope. Really no hope. Do we know they didn't do that? No, that's my point. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that a company like Capital One, which is a huge, you know, a huge uh, like financial f- services firm, would would so not have that. So we're just wildly that. speculating irresponsibly at this point. Absolutely, as Excellent. we as we do every time. Fair enough. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, by the way, it's keeping in mind, right? Capital One was the victim here. That we have somebody charged with a crime. The uh, the, the vulnerability was a little bit, um, well, the apparent vulnerability use was a little obtuse, um, you know, but. Um, 
Try not to blame the victim too much here. All right, so moving on to our next story. Uh, comes from Data Breach Today, and the title is Insider Threat Lessons from Three Incidents. Uh, so these are uh, these are healthcare, U.S. healthcare-related uh, breaches uh, involving insiders. So there's a you know HIP, obvious HIPAA component. First example they they raise is a company called Cygenics, and Cygenics fell victim to something that I see quite a lot actually, uh, and that's an employee sending. And work information to their personal email address, and and good you know goodness knows people have all sorts of different reasons why they <laughs> why they say they do this, right? They like the yeah. template, or you know they were proud of the format they created or whatever, but they don't. Or know. what I see a lot, <clears throat> they want to work on it at home. Or they yes yes. Or they're already working at home. And the laptop they're on sucks, but their main computer has big monitors and nice keyboards and nice mouses, mice, mice, mouse, whatever. And they want to work on their comfortable workstation, not on their crappy little laptop. But Good point. I, either Good way, point. it's you know, I, it's it's not meant to be malicious. A lot of times, like we see with a lot of security things, it's a it's a productivity enhancer for them. They think. Yeah, yeah. when you make it difficult, to, you know, you. Uh you you epoxy shut the USB drives and USB ports, <laughs> and uh, now they're emailing. So it's not clear exactly how they uh, how they detected it, but um, you know, but that's that's certainly an issue uh, I've seen, and I think a lot of organizations wrestle wrestle with this. Um, uh, next comes from uh, Geisinger, I think is how you would say it, uh, and in in this case. Uh, they had an employee, uh, I think a clinician, who over the course of three years accessed 800 patient records without uh, without a valid business need. And, you know, this is, by the way, I think something in, in the context is somewhat unique in terms of a data breach consequence to, to HIPAA, right? I mean, I, I suspect that if you really got, in, got into it with you know, European data privacy regulators, you, they would be there too. But in, in the in the healthcare world, this is really um, something that comes up for a fair amount, especially with like celebrities. We've seen this in the past where healthcare workers have you know have looked up the medical records of celebrities and whatnot. Uh, but it is difficult, you know. They they point out here in in another part of the article, it's 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 kind of difficult to take someone who would otherwise have a business need to access a certain set of data and, you know, make sure that they're not accessing that data for improper purposes, you know, especially if it's 800 over the course of three years, like if it were 800 yeah. in a week, that's at, probably at point, different. You have, to, you have to trust your employees to a certain extent. Right. Right. And, you know, like your sysadmins who, you know, might have, admin level privileges on key databases. At some point, you just have to trust those guys. Now, what I find interesting about this is, A, you could put monitoring software in to monitor that and catch it. This happened over three years, and it, the way this is worded, they were alerted, their privacy office was alerted to an employee possibly accessing medical records, and they did an investigation and fired the employee. So that tells you that was not a technical control that picked that up 
Correct. Somebody tipped them. Right. So either this employee was talking about it, shared something with somebody, somehow somebody else found out about what this employee was doing and reported it to their privacy office, which is interesting. So not the best way to find this out. You know, I would think that this is something that I think you probably could wrap some technical controls around fairly robustly um, and review this sort of information on a regular basis. But, but again, it's tough. You know, it looks over three years, 800 records. That's, it's, you know, a couple a day, one a day. If that, not, I mean, not high volume. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it really is. And I, I have seen in other contexts, I, I think healthcare might be a, a bit different and, and certainly would depend on, the role of the person, right? It's, it's different if you're talking about an, you know, an ER surgeon versus, uh, uh, you know, a, a data entry person working for a, a health insurance company. And what, one thing I have seen is, um, you know, is only allowing people to have access to a record when they've been assigned, you know, some sort of a ticket, that allows them to have access, you know, so basically if I'm assigned to, you know, to work on, on Andrew Kellett's record, then now I, now I have the ability to go in and see it, but otherwise I don't. Um, I, I see this in some of the more mature organizations in other contexts, like, um, you know, customer records or even being able to log into servers, right? I you can't log into a server, I'm a sysadmin and I can't log into a server unless I have a ticket that's open, you know, it's, that's assigned to me. So, um, yeah, well, something like, a <clears throat> you're only given the, the ever changing password. Exactly. Out of the password vault. If you're now somebody somewhere has probably got a break glass password just in case. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the thing that would concern me in the context of healthcare is, you know, like I, well, you you could do it where it takes like two people, three people. They're, they're, they're Fair. controls. Fair. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Now, the other thing is we don't know this person's role. We don't know if they were no. what they were. We don't know if they were a customer facing. We don't know if they were, they were a dead entry, what they were. I get a feeling like they worked with customer records on a regular basis, though, and just got a little. Yeah, they apparently talked too much, too. Yeah. All right. The last, the last of the three comes from the Arizona Endocrinology Center. This is, this is so common it hurts. But in a in the context of a healthcare setting, it's a it's a little different problem. So a, a, a doctor who was leaving the the practice here uh, did what most well I won't say most what many salespeople do. They took the customer list with them. Of customer list containing the information of 74,000 patients. And and I guess that wasn't enough, right? They but they used that to start spamming the patients letting them know that um, you know that this doctor the doctor had moved to a new uh, a, a new clinic, I guess, and was uh, was looking for, looking for patients. So yeah, uh th- this again, I think this is super super common um it's kind of i'll tell you in general take this with a grain of salt in general doctors also are a bit like executives they're very important they're very busy they don't necessarily have time or interest in your rules 
they got stuff to do. Absolutely. They're saving lives. Absolutely. So, so yeah, this is, uh, this is, uh, I think it's certainly it manifested itself as a problem because of HIPAA, but I can certainly see down the line this becoming a big issue under things like CCPA and GDPR and, and other data, you know, more broad data privacy regulations. But I think this is a, a epidemic issue with salespeople. You know, salespeople often leave organizations. Oh, yeah. they, right? they feel that relationship is theirs. Correct. That they cultivated with the customer. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, well, believe me, I've seen so much uh, <laughs> ugliness there. Uh, now I'm getting PTSD flashbacks. Thanks. <clears throat> but you know what I think? I think doctors, when they move practices, should advertise like tree cutters do in the neighborhood. Oh, they put so, a uh, put a, a, a yard no, sign up. No, no. Hey, Bob. Next week, I'm going to be in your neighbor Phyllis's gut doing some surgery, and because I'm going to be in the neighborhood, <laughs> I can offer you a twenty percent discount oh, God. on any surgeries because we're already here. Uh, yeah, I, I. You know what? This is probably just a suburban. Yeah, joke. yeah, yeah. That that doesn't resonate with me. You can you can edit that out. That's fine. <laughs> they can't all be winners. All right. Uh, the last last story for today, standing me between me and dinner, comes from ZDNet, and the title is "Ransomware Deploys Virtual Machines to Hide Itself from Antivirus Software." So typically, I've, I've been trying to keep the show focused on you know on data breaches and and what what happened, but. I thought this was fascinating. So uh, uh, this malware called uh, Ragnarlocker, which is kind of an interesting name, kind of they opted out of the whole antivirus evasion game by spinning up, uh, it actually downloads and installs VirtualBox and then downloads uh, and starts up a cut down version of Windows XP and runs the uh, the ransomware actually in the Windows XP VM which has been granted access to all of the file systems connected to the host operating system which is clever which which um, you know allows it to touch and manipulate all the files but does not provide any insight into the operation of the malware because you know malware anti-malware engines don't look inside VMs like that, uh, at least any that I'm aware of. So, I had a couple of thoughts and questions on this. So, we did, at least in this article, and I didn't go into the report. It doesn't talk about the initial infection vector, but I gotta think it only has the privileges of whatever user's running. So if your user doesn't have rights to install VirtualBox, this probably wouldn't work. I.e., they don't have in a, in, a, in a corporate environment, they don't have local admin rights. I think that's, that would probably shut this down. It's, that's probably true. It's quite very very likely true. Um, although it's not clear to me, and I, I I generally don't know this. You're making me question this now. I don't know if you would be able to download um and, and run VirtualBox out of let's say your you know your your temp directory 
as a user. Well, you could, but it comes down to you have the rights to install a new application. Yeah, but keep in mind that you don't. Not everything has to be installed to run. Oh, right? you're just yeah, you're just like grabbing a package that isn't. Yeah, so I'm just, just saying like, like copying the or an MSI yeah, or whatever. Copying the uh, the virtual box, just enough of the virtual box uh, package down that that would allow you to run it. I don't even know if that's actually doable. I've I, so you, I, I went into the article itself, which I should have done before the show, but I'm a slacker. Um, <clears throat> in this particular instance. What it does is they use a GPO task to execute the Microsoft installer, passing parameters to download and silently install the 122 meg crafted unsigned MSI package from a remote web server. The primary contents of the MSI package were a working installation of an old Oracle VirtualBox uh, hypervisor uh, and a virtual disk image of the stripped down version of Windows XP called Micro XP version 0.82. And the actual ransomware executable is 49K. So, hey, kudos for the optimization. They've done some work on that. So that's interesting. So, yeah. I I mean, I guess uh, whitelisting or or whatnot could help with this, but... I I think there's a lot of things that could help with this. You know, one, one is most... Probably most of your fleet doesn't need to be running VirtualBox or a hypervisor of any sort, uh, or, or or maybe maybe it does. I think I think some of the newer Windows, um, you know, Windows sandboxing techniques use uh, uh, hypervisors, but I think that's Hyper-V, not not uh, obviously not VirtualBox. But I got to I got to believe there's ways to detect that. Although it's not hard to think that. You know, VirtualBox could be swapped with Hyper-V if that's, you know, if that's a, a more uh, common tool that's installed on, on workstations. But what, you know, what struck me more is not necessarily this particular ransomware, but the tactic of of running malware inside a VM so that it completely opts out of your ability to, to detect it with your... Um, you know, with with your anti malware tools. Yeah, that is interesting. Though, aren't some tools specifically targeting anti ransomware looking for the file type activity of an encryption? Yes. So that would probably get detected. Correct. Hmm. This Correct. Is interesting. I but I don't know. You know, it, th- that would be really interesting because now it's. Um, I, I don't know how some of those tools work, right? Because it. Right. It, it, I don't know if they'll have the this, ability to stop the hypervisor or not. This is why I wish there was an additional round to the pwn to own competitions of the same exploit, but being run with vendor whomever thinks they can handle its Mm. protection gear on it. And then does it still run? I'd love to see that sort of testing. (laughs) Right. Independent, but you you know you'd hear endless whining about how the well, vendors didn't have a chance to properly well, configure the tools. But I mean that's fair, and Pondone is very valuable. Don't get me wrong, but it's also it's it's like when you have a sandboxing tech, you know, grabbing files off your corporate wire or off your email and running against a stock image that isn't your image. 
right? And so the, if it doesn't have your patch levels and whatnot, it's not that that finding is invalid, but knowing whether or not it would impact your population is useful in responsiveness, right? And, and whatnot. So, you know, if somebody's got an active exploit out there, but there's also an active patch, and I've already got that patch out there, I'd rather it'd be nice if if my tool said, "Hey, somebody tried to do this, but it failed in your gold image, but worked on the stock image." But you know, I know that's a lot to ask, and I know that a lot of those vendors have very selectively tuned and custom built sandboxes for speed and performance. And giving them corporate images would destroy that model. I get that. I understand that's it. They won't tell you that. They, they won't admit that typically. They won't say, this is why we don't do this is because the responsiveness would go to hell. I get that. Um, and, and a couple of vendors out there will do it. But it's, it's interesting. I, I'm kind of off on a tangent here. But it's not, in my mind, the next step is not just, hey, this is malware. But this malware is successful or not successful in a representative version of my environment. Yeah. Is it able to complete its mission or not? Does the does your does your tool for what, what through whatever means have the ability to com, to prevent right. the malware or the bad actor from completing its mission? Because otherwise, you got your you know your detection response team chasing. You know, I wouldn't say that it's a false positive, but it's a a low risk alert. Right. Yeah, that's fair. It's a good idea. It's not scalable yeah. at all, but it's a good idea. No, no. I, most of my ideas fail miserably in production. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I think that's that's all for today. Uh, short short show. So um, thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you to our our uh, continued Patreon supporters. Definitely appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, thank you, guys. You can follow Mr. Callet on Twitter at Lerg, L-E-R-G. You can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk again very soon. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.